We believe God is a generous God, so we act and give generously even when it stretches us, even when it hurts us, even when it may rob something that we might want to do here and now. And so last week we looked at this really key idea that God does not need your money. He doesn't. If you missed last week, please grab the podcast. It laid a foundation for how we're talking about generosity. But if I could sum it up in one sentence, God does not need your money. He wants your heart. He does not need your money. He wants your heart. We want the fullness of God's presence on us. Jesus called it life abundant in John 10.10. Paul called it being filled with all the fullness of God in Ephesians chapter 3. And counting everything else in life as rubbish, Philippians 3, in comparison with knowing Christ. So everything in our life, apart from knowing Christ, is secondary. When it comes to generosity, often a lot of us think of a transaction, a transactional moment. Like, I have money, they want money. I maybe am compelled to give some money, and so I'll give some money because these organizations seem worthy. And rather than looking at generosity as a transaction, what we've been trying to cultivate this week and last week is to see generosity as the natural fruit of a life filled with God's presence. We are working on determining whether we can see generosity as part of our discipleship to Jesus rather than just a good thing to do. And for us, that is, that is a core belief of ours. Generosity is not just a good thing to do. It is at the very core and center of how we are growing into the likeness of Jesus. So we want to seek after Jesus and be with him and let that presence, let his presence with us be the thing that causes generosity to pour out of us. And so last week we talked about being with Jesus and how that actually produces overflow in our lives. We looked at this We looked at this verse in Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm for many of us. The Lord is my shepherd, right? And buried right in the middle is this line in verse 5, you anoint my head with oil. Right? And so the idea of oil, anointing with oil was a symbol of God's presence on or with someone my cup overflows. The idea is that when you are filled with God's presence, when you are filled with all the fullness of God, your cup overflows. The gospel does, doesn't just go to you, it goes through you. That something happens in your life when you are with Jesus, that it changes everything. As the presence of God is poured out on us, our cup, our life, our possessions, our offerings, they overflow, they spill out, they are poured out as a blessing. And when his presence is the defining factor of our story, it produces a fullness that overflows in generosity, in all sorts of different kinds of generosity. And then it's no longer out of duty We're out of habit, but we can give, like Paul says, cheerfully because we have been so filled with Jesus. And so last week was really unpacking that foundation. God does not need your money. He wants your heart. And if you're unwilling to give up your money, chances are he does not have your heart. But the biblical reality is the more we're with Jesus, the more we become like him. The more we're filled with his presence, the more we're walking with him, the more we start to look and smell and sound like Jesus. And as we grow in the likeness of Jesus, generosity will pour out of us in increasing measure. 
But this is not inevitable, which is what we're talking about today. This lifestyle, this culture of generosity in us and in a church does not just happen. It happens because we are partnering with the Holy Spirit and actually growing in this. Meaning, if we want to grow in our generosity, it will not just happen to us passively. We need to practice. We need to engage the Holy Spirit in this. That is what today is all about. And so what I want to do today is give a primer for how we change for what formation looks like, for how we are being formed by the world around us and what it means to counter that kind of formation with the Jesus life that he calls us into. And then I want to look at how that actually trickles out into the life of Jesus and how we can look at the life of Jesus, his posture of generosity, and actually mirror that in our own lives, okay? So that's what we are doing today. And so I want to start with a primer on how we are being formed as individuals and as a people. We are intentional here at Anthem about formation into the image and likeness of Jesus. We, we say all the time, we have an agenda for you. There is, a, there is an underlying agenda for you when you show up at Anthem, and that's for you to grow in the image of likeness of Jesus. Everything we do, every program, everything that's on our calendar, things we teach through, things we are worshiping together, what's happening with the kids, all has the underlying agenda of you growing into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ himself. Now, we're intentional about this because just by waking up in the morning, you are being formed into something or someone else. Conforming to the image of Jesus does not just happen to you. What actually does just happen to you is you're being conformed into something or someone else. There are powerful forces at play trying to get you to become something or someone else. We are always being formed into something. And I I say that because as we talk about what it means to become like Jesus, we have to realize that you are not starting from a net zero. You are not starting from a neutral position. You're not starting with a blank slate. You're actually starting with people and things and culture trying to pull you away from the goal of becoming like Jesus. A famous theologian from a few hundred years ago, Martin Luther, said there are three primary forces that try to pull us off that goal. And that is the world around us, the culture we live in, 2019, city of Ventura, like the world around us, its values, the things that it believes are important. The enemy like Satan and his demons. There is a real spiritual enemy. We believe that as a church, that it's not just good and good alone, but there is good and evil, and that is personified in Satan and his forces, and their goal is to pull you away from becoming more like Jesus. But then the third enemy, does anyone know what the third one is? Have you studied Luther before? Our own flesh, like ourselves, our inward animistic desires to get whatever we want whenever we want it. These three things in combination are powerful forces that keep you, that try to keep you from becoming like Jesus. And so the question is not, are you being formed into something? It is, what are you being formed into? Who or what are you being formed into? Or better yet, who are you becoming? Are you becoming Jesus expressed through your person and your personality? Or are you becoming something or someone else? As you look at the trajectory of your life and say, what does my life look like in 20 years? Am I becoming more or less like Jesus? 
It reveals the things that are trying to form us. And the invitation of the scriptures is always to counter that kind of unintentional formation, the inevitable inertia of culture, of the enemy, and of our own flesh. To counter that formation and to choose to be shaped by the Holy Spirit into the character and image of Jesus. That is always the invitation of Scripture. The reality of the gospel is Jesus meets you where you're at, but he is gracious enough to not leave you there. The trajectory of the Christian life is always growth into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so from the Bible, transformation, you being wholly changed from the inside out, is the goal. So depending on your spiritual heritage, that may have been called sanctification or maturity or spiritual formation or whatever, swap in whatever language is is fine with you, but that is the goal, that you look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday, and you look more like Jesus tomorrow than you did today. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, once wrote, without him, we can't, and without us, he won't. And the picture we get, particularly from the New Testament, about how we change is one of constant and continual change and transformation to be more like Jesus, but that is not done to you. There's partnership involved. The promise of the New Testament is nothing short of full-on transformation. Look at how Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second letter. And he says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. That is the picture. Full-on transformation from one degree of glory to another. Throughout the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, we find that transformation or growing into the likeness of Christ is not only the goal, but it's the expectation of the Christian life. So it's not just the goal if you went to seminary or the goal if you like can carve out three hours a day to read your Bible and pray or the goal if you like just get saved and then, you know, don't really know anything about Christianity yet. Like it's the goal and the expectation for every single person, whether today is the first day you've encountered Jesus or you've been walking with him for decades and decades. As disciples, our predestined purpose is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. But that transformation takes participation and intentionality. So there's maybe a couple of different camps you and I might be coming from when we think about change and transformation. One is that we don't do anything, like we're scared off by the quote-unquote gospel of works. And so we just sit back and we say, okay, Holy Spirit, you do all the heavy lifting. Graciously, he actually does do all the heavy lifting. But you do everything. I'm just going to sit here uh, and trust that like you're going to wave your magic wand and make me more like Christ. Now, the other side of the spectrum, depending on where you've come from, might be to not actually rely on the Holy Spirit, but to grit your teeth, put your head down, and through your own strength saying, I'm going to muscle this thing out. Through sheer willpower and my own strength, I'm going to become more like Jesus, whether I like it or not, you know? And the reality that we see in Scripture is it's actually this, like, beautiful dance that's a little bit messy sometimes. This beautiful partnership where, yes, the Holy Spirit is doing the heavy lifting, but he doesn't leave you off the hook. That you're involved. You're participating. You are intentional about this. 
2 Peter 1 says to make every effort, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And Romans 8 says God is on about something in you. God's at work and you need to be at work. In fact, God was at work long before you, enabling you to join him in this work. Paul to the Philippians says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my absence, but much more, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, look at this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The sentence is not over. It's not you do everything. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See the beautiful interplay between how God is at work in you, but that doesn't leave you off the hook. That doesn't create in us laziness or a hyper-spirituality, but it also doesn't create in us where we have to muscle everything through in our own strength. Paul frequently uses this word, put on, to describe how we engage that process of change. He says in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, to put on the new self, put on the new man, put on the new woman, put off the old things. And it's that image of of slipping into your shirt and slipping into your pants every day. That is a daily practice. We are putting on our new identity because it does not just happen to us. And according to Paul, it does not just happen to us. We have to engage. This process has changed. Yes, something has happened once and for all. Jesus has saved us and brought us into his family. And we now engage in this lifelong journey of transformation from the inside out, conforming to his image. There are things, forces at work in our time and in our place, pulling you away from the goal of becoming like Jesus. And we see clearly from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is in work in your life, making you more like Jesus. But that does not cause you to sit back and relax. It actually causes you to join him in that work because transformation takes participation and intentionality. Okay, that's our baseline. How do we do that? How do we do it? We say, okay, fine, I don't just sit back and do nothing, or I don't just grit it out on my own. How do we actually change? How do we transform? We've done this a few times as a church before, so apologies if it's redundant, but chances are you've already forgotten it, which is why I teach it over and over again. But we actually have a paradigm here uh, that we stole from lots of really smart people and have searched scriptures for. We have a paradigm, a bit of paradigm for how we change, or what we call intentional spiritual formation. So if the world, the flesh, uh, the enemy is unintentional spiritual formation, you are being formed into something or someone else just by waking up. How do we counter those forces with intentional formation, intentional spiritual formation? Once again, if that language is weird for you, swap out intentional maturity or intentional maturing or intentional sanctification, whatever is helpful for you, But we're getting at the same idea. How are we becoming more like Jesus? Because it will not just happen. First, we got a little triangle here. So hopefully it helps you remember. And if you're a note-taking kind of person, feel free to jot this down. But we use a little triangle to help us remember how we change. And there are a couple of different elements to how we change. And the first is teaching. Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever lived. Those who try to rob the church of teaching are robbing the church of Jesus, one of his core ministries. Teaching is, is 
partly what I'm doing here. It's undermining the false stories of the world that we so often believe. It's to give us a picture of the good life Jesus so frequently preaches about, and it helps us understand and comprehend the scriptures. So Paul writes to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, what? Mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Teaching is a critical element to how we change. Now, our problem is not so much that we abandon teaching, but it's we put all our eggs in that basket and think, if I just know more information, I will change. How many of you guys have ever watched a documentary on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, got really fired up about something, and then nothing changed the next day? So, now, some of you guys are way more faithful to that. Like, you watch a, you know, Forks Over Knives or something, and you're like, I'm not eating meat anymore. Well done. Like, you have consistency. We don't have. But often, we, like, watch some, like, documentaries, get all fired up about something, and then, like, nothing changes. I always tell this story. My best friend, Josh, he's now in Denver planning a church, and uh, my best friend, Josh, is allergic to all sorts of things. You know, he goes to the doctor, take one of those tests where they prick him with stuff, and he's, like, allergic to everything, from strawberries to dairy, gluten, black pepper, what, avocados. There's like 30 things he should not eat. Uh, so my favorite story, one of my favorite stories about Josh is the day he comes home from that appointment where the doctor tells him all the things that are wrong with him and all the things he shouldn't eat. Uh, he wants to order a pizza. So we order like a pizza. And I was like, wait a second. On a pizza are tomatoes, which I think you're allergic to, uh, gluten, which you're definitely allergic to, dairy, which you're super allergic to. Like, why are you, why are you eating all this stuff? Information alone did not actually change him. We are kidding ourselves if we think learning new things actually changes our lives. It's a piece of the puzzle, but that's not it. So the second part of this triangle here is practice. We actually have to do stuff. This is going to take a lifetime of practice because often we experience a gap in what we know and how we live. So many of us feel a disconnect between the promise of change and transformation and our felt experience and reality. And it's because we believe information alone will change us, and it doesn't, so we have to practice. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We have to practice author of the book Practicing the Way of Jesus, Mark Scandretti, says, you can't learn karate by watching. And we can't learn to follow Jesus without practicing to do what he did and what he taught. Part of Celebrate Generosity is practice. It is a once, it's fun, it's a party, but it's also a once a year discipline to say we will not be conformed into the image of this world that says everything I have is mine, but to practice Psalm 24, everything on the earth is the Lord's. It is a discipline. It is a practice. It is a once-a-year discipline. We have a monthly practice where we tithe on the tithe, give away 10% of everything that comes in in any given month. Diligent practice because we know without that practice and just the information, we would not change. We would not actually become more generous by hearing more sermons on generosity. We become more generous by actually being generous. The third part of this triangle here is community. We talk about this a lot. We spent the whole last month talking around communities. We kicked off our fall season of community groups. But living in community 
is a practice, and it's the uh, context for which we change. We can't follow Jesus alone. Nobody's the exception, not, not even you. You cannot follow Jesus alone. Jesus didn't have a disciple. He had disciples. We can choose our friendships, our relationships. So many people in our life, we can pick the people who look like us, dress like us, vote like us, think like us, and never really be challenged to grow. However, in community, as some of you have discovered over the last month, you don't really get to choose the people who you are in community with. It is more like family than it is friendships. Because community exposes you and it encourages you. It exposes all the ways that you still have left to grow in life and it encourages you. Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You cannot be a Christian alone. You can't do it. Let alone grow in generosity by yourself. We need community. That's why we do this together. And that's not only why we do this together as a church, but why we do it together as a family of churches. We're doing this in our greater community. Okay, and finally, not finally, next step, in the middle of the triangle, lest we think we can muscle this out on our own, this is all fueled by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right, here's the goal here, that the Holy Spirit becomes the dominant voice and reality over the voice of your current environment. And this is the baseline for all transformation, is being shaped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Being with Jesus is the foundational relational context for becoming like him. There's no genuine spiritual formation apart from being with Jesus, which Jesus says happens with the Holy Spirit abiding in his presence. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. Which is why the Holy Spirit is in the center of the triangle, fueling our teaching, our practice, our community. And this all happens over time through what James calls trials of various kinds, or what Jay-Z calls the hard knocks of life, uh, this happens. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. This happens over time. We often want microwave discipleship, where tomorrow, or over nine weeks, or over a one-year course, or whatever, we're done, we got it, we got this Jesus thing locked down, but this happens over a lifetime. It's teaching, practice, community. The work of the Holy Spirit happens over time through trials. God does not waste any hard moment in your life. Every single one of them is building in you the character, the image, and the likeness of Jesus. This is long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson says. So what I want to do with the last few minutes that we have, with that foundation undergirding what we're talking about here, is I want to look at just a couple of snapshots of Jesus' life to learn what generosity looks like lived out. Now, we're doing this a little bit differently than maybe some of you are like, are kind of like girding your loins waiting for me to like talk about money in a real way where you like are having to shake your wallets out or something. That's not what's happening today. Because one of the interesting things about the life and ministry of Jesus is he didn't really have money. 
He, he lived off the grace and generosity of other people. He was, for the most part, a homeless itinerant rabbi moving from town to town. He didn't have a lot of cash in the bank. But in his character, in his likeness, and in his life and teaching, we see a character and posture of generosity over everything. So rather than looking at how Jesus gave money, we want to look at Jesus' character and his posture to see what we can do to shape that same character and posture in our own lives, to mimic Jesus. Because he doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. As you're with Jesus, you'll become more like him. So looking at Jesus' character and posture, and there are two kind of snapshots of how Jesus expressed generosity in his character and posture. And the first is a generosity expressed as like inconvenience. If you've ever read through the Gospels, Jesus gets interrupted a lot, and he finds himself in some inconvenient situations quite a bit. The first one is found in John chapter 4. So you can look on the screen or you can open your Bible, John chapter 4. And this is kind of a fairly known uh, story about Jesus, if you've interacted with the Bible at all. Uh, And it's Jesus and a Samaritan woman, or the woman at the well. Jesus was leaving Judea to go to Galilee, so he's going south to north. uh, And he was passing through Samaria. Now, traditionally, Jews didn't like to go to Samaria or interact with any of the Samaritans. The history is connected to the origin of the Samaritans being essentially like an unclean half-breed of people. There's a whole lot of backstory there, but they were like, you go around them. You don't interact with them. You don't go through the city. You walk all the way around. There's a no-fly zone in the culture of Israel. But Jesus decides to ignore that and actually go directly through Samaria. And while on, on the way home, he stops at a well to rest, and a woman comes to draw water. Let's look at the story in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I don't hear any Bibles turning, so maybe you're just like trusting that I put the right stuff on the screen. All right, starting in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. There's so many implications in that like one verse. I don't even have time for it. Gosh, this is such a good story. Go read this on your own. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sounding pretty good. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The story continues on. It's a beautiful one, but the point is simple. Jesus demonstrated an incredible generosity through his willingness to cross culture and societal barriers to share the good news of the kingdom of God with someone he was not supposed to. Now, if I were teaching a whole message on this passage, I'd probably approach it a little bit differently, but for the sake of time, I want to focus 
on some key elements of the story that help us today. One thing that we see consistently from Jesus, we see clearly in the story, is his willingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. John tells us that Jesus was wearied from his journey. And the reality is that Jesus was under no societal obligation to speak with this woman. In fact, it probably leaned the other way, where he probably got in in more trouble for doing this. But this was a scenario that Jesus initiated and sometimes there are others that crash in on Jesus and what he's trying to do, but this woman would not have, have engaged Jesus if he had not initiated. Jesus chose, in spite of his weariness, in spite of his journey, in spite of the cultural and societal barriers, he chose to express love, dignity, and truth to this woman. And what came from Jesus' willingness to be inconvenienced was multiplied fruit and gospel advancement in the town of Samaria that went beyond this one moment. A second story that gives us a snapshot of of Jesus' generosity as he is inconvenienced is Zacchaeus, another familiar story to many of us who have engaged with the scriptures. And it comes from Luke chapter 19 and his interaction, Jesus' interaction with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was really wealthy, and he was seeking out Jesus. He was trying to find Jesus, but his objective was to see him, like literally see him. Zacchaeus was a wee little man friends that have grown up in Sunday school. He was trying to see him. He was trying to see who's making this ruckus in the town. And Jesus, again, could have kept walking, and there would have been no story, but Jesus opted for a different approach when he calls out to him. In verse 5, when he came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Another cultural no-no. The picture of this moment is so surreal. Jesus is identifying a single person out of a crowd, calling him by name and saying, I'm coming to your house. This moment demonstrates another one of Jesus' elements of, of his generosity. It's contagious. If we want to see God move in powerful ways, it's going to inconvenience us. 100% of the stories of God really working in my life in a supernatural or a prophetic or a Holy Spirit-led moment always inconvenienced me. It always caused me to give up some of my time or some of my money or to talk to someone I don't want to talk to or to deviate from the plan that I had set out with. 100% of those crazy God moments and God stories that I have come when I am ready to be inconvenienced, when I'm ready for my plan to be thrown out the window. When you think about the kinds of things you want to see in this world, are you ready to be inconvenienced for them? In a culture that that idolizes comfort and security and having a plan and having all your ducks in a row, are you willing to be inconvenienced? Your expressions of faith and generosity will absolutely impact the people receiving it as well as anyone that witnesses it. But it starts with you. Jesus is needed money. He wants your heart. Are you ready to be available for the opportunities he presents? The second snapshot we get from the life, teaching, ministry of Jesus is generosity expressed as like relational compassion. 
Right? So the story comes out of Mark chapter 5, if you want to turn there. And it's the story of the, the bleeding woman. These are just the awful headaches. This is the poor girl. In the midst of another story of Jesus being redirected by, by others, like another story of inconvenience here, there's this amazing story that happens with Jesus. He's walking towards uh, healing a centurion woman. This is not even like the point of the story. It's like, a, it's like an aside that happens. He's, he's on about something else. He's about to go heal someone else. And he gets interrupted. And Mark's gospel tells us here in, in chapter 5, there's a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Right, so ongoing medical struggle, no solutions, money spent, but ongoing. And she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now in some senses, the story is done, right? This amazing, tragic story of an ongoing illness that cannot be healed. She grabs Jesus' garment because of her faith she's healed. That's not the end of the story. The woman had a problem, but the problem is, is gone. The challenge is that Jesus doesn't always just work that way. Generosity isn't just about solving a problem. In our case, it's not generosity to simply throw money at an issue and hope that we will have accomplished something. Jesus shows us a different kind of generosity, the kind that flows out of the presence of the Lord, filling and overflowing. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Of your disease. Jesus showed generosity, not just healing her, but in relational compassion. And this woman would have been healed whether Jesus stopped and turned or not. Jesus wanted to give her more than simply a healing for a medical problem. He wanted to show her compassion and give her dignity. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus acknowledges the woman, gives her a blessing of peace, and calls her a daughter. In doing that, Jesus shows us that generosity is not explicitly in action only, but there's a posture of compassion and love that embodies this concept of generosity. God doesn't need your money, He wants your heart. Are you ready to be inconvenienced? Are you ready for your check-writing skills to be accompanied by relational action? We see this in Jesus frequently. He simply doesn't do just good things or gives just a good answer. His heart is for the people that are receiving it. We see in Matthew chapter 9, he had compassion on the crowds because they were helpless and harassed. Part of us growing to be people of generosity is to be growing as a people of compassion. Who look and live like Jesus. 
growing in not only the way of Jesus, but in the heart of Jesus as well. Jesus, posture, his posture, his character was generous with whatever he had, relationally, with his time. Everything about Jesus screams he was not just looking for the right action. We're not just doing the right thing. He genuinely had a heart wrapped up in the fathers, wanting to do his will, show compassion, bring dignity. And for us, as we consider the life of Jesus, we consider what change looks like. We have to wrestle with the reality that transformation is possible. It is promised, and it is expected as you live a life of Jesus, but it is not inevitable. Jesus' work opens the door to real transformation in our life. So we engage the Holy Spirit in our lives to become more like How do we become like Jesus as we grow in generosity? For, I mean, we can start by mirroring his posture and his character in these stories. Yes. How do we grow in generosity by becoming like Jesus? When the Bible teaches around money and around generosity, there's a fascinating element to it. It's the element that, that Paul captures for us as he writes to Timothy. In the letter of 1 Timothy, kind of captures this really interesting component to how the Bible talks about money and generosity. I'm going to read it, and I just want to share you guys like the one principle that is living in here. First Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, do any kind of global study, that's you. Whether you make a minimum wage or not, like you live in Southern California 2019, you are the top 10%, if not the top 3%. In this present age. As for the rich in this present age, that's us. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. By the way, that little aside about the future, that's Paul, once again, referencing the resurrection of our resurrection lives. Foundation for the future. Here's the fascinating thing about this passage and many others like it in the Bible. Paul does not say they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share because there are a lot of needs out there. And God wants to help these people. That's not what Paul says. Paul does quite a bit of shuffling of money. He's like a gospel money launderer throughout the entire New Testament, moving money from you know, rich people to needy people and so on. That's not what he's getting at here. In this passage, the recipients of the money and the good works are not the project. The giver is the project. Those who are, and I quote, rich in this present age are the project. We are the project. It's us becoming like Jesus as we do what he did. We are the project. As we mimic Jesus' posture and his character, as we're with him, we're becoming like him. When we break down the reason that Paul wants Timothy to teach this, it's to grow the person with the resources to understand the true nature of life with Christ. 
It's not that God isn't concerned with the poor or anything like that, but the motivation is not that there are people in need. The motivation is the things God wants to do for you. So if you want to be shaped and changed by the power of God, and you want to grow in understanding what life truly is, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. As we talk about generosity, we're giving to some amazing organizations. And I really do hope they motivate and fuel your desire to be generous. But they're not important. God wants your heart. This is a rhythmic exercise in unclenching our fists from our wallets. To know that Jesus is King. He is our provider. And we are to not trust in riches but to trust in God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy.